You're listening to the Virtual World Society podcast. For this episode, we invited Dace Campbell, XR subject matter expert and AEC. To get involved with our organization, head over to virtualworldsociety.org. What is going on, everybody? It is Maxwell with the Virtual World Society podcast. Very excited, happy, and honored to be here today with none other than Dace Campbell, XR subject matter expert in AEC. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Max. It's a pleasure to be here. Your background is really fascinating, and I noticed that everybody in XR comes from different places. I came from broadcasting and voiceover and multimedia. I, I know other people came from different charity organizations. Tom Furness uh, came from the uh, originally was in the military and started inventing different cockpits. And you yourself, you were an architect for many years, right? Yeah, yeah, that's my background. I'm I'm still a licensed architect, although the uh, the ink on my stamp has gone dry. I don't don't actively practice architecture anymore. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's where I got my start and and first found uh, some some good alignment with where where VR was, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about VR 30 years ago. What what was different about it back then to now? Sure, sure. Well, um, I guess, you know, I, I found an affinity to VR because at, at the time in the late 80s and early 90s, I, I was an architecture student and, and I, arguably a pretty mediocre uh, designer. Um, but I had a really good hand. I, I could, uh, you know, could, could develop artistic graphics by hand fairly well and they were fairly seductive. And I would fool myself and fool my professors into thinking that I had a good design when in fact the design was probably not that great, but it looked good on paper. And so I looked around for a medium that could uh, allow me to focus on the form and the space and the order of architecture without getting seduced by the graphics. And as you might imagine, uh, computer graphics were fairly nascent at the time, kind of late 80s, early 90s, kind of crude graphics for the most part. And so I started to veer into that. And of course, VR at the time was was a, a real-time expression of those computer graphics. You know, allowed for a real-time spatial experience, which was very attractive to me to study architectural space. Now, of course, since that time, graphics have evolved and improved. Hollywood got involved in graphics in the 90s, and suddenly computer graphics weren't this simplistic uh, polygonal shading. You know, we got actually quite, you know, hyper-realism. And so that was no longer a motivating factor. But by then, um, I had, you know, I had been bitten by the bug. I had VR in my bloodstream, and there was no turning back. So, um, you know, back then, um, I was focused again on sort of how could um, a VR experience help inform a design or help somebody understand and and build their comprehension of a designer's intentions. Uh, today, that has evolved. Obviously, it's no longer just VR in the conversation. There's a whole XR umbrella of augmented reality and mixed reality, all the realities. Um, and the conversation has also evolved from just, can we visualize design in an evocative or spatial way? But, uh, you know, can we experience 
3D data spatially, no matter where it is. Uh, for example, augmented reality informed uh, decision making on a construction site, having almost nothing to do with design visualization, but being able to make uh, the right decision, the most effective decision with confidence and understanding, no matter where you are in the in the life cycle of a, of a building's design and construction. Yeah. I can imagine that architecture has changed with the times not only the design but the process the laws everything must be must be changed and must be different did virtual reality have a huge impact on those changes as in it influenced those changes or was it more so that those in the architecture world were thinking to themselves hey what are what are different ways that we can that we can go about this I think more the latter. Um, you know, if there's been an if there's been an influence on you know the impact that uh, VR has had in the profession, uh, or vice versa, it's come more along the lines of uh, other uh, adjacent tools and processes that have have been enablers. So there was a point in time where somebody doing VR in in AEC, that's you know architecture, engineering, and construction. Um, would have a quite a challenge ahead of them because there were no processes in place and building a 3d model and looking at it in real time was so far removed from somebody just doing 2d drafting in a cad program uh there were a lot of kind of custom steps and and bespoke uh activities and 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 work streams that had to happen since that time we've had the development of building information modeling or otherwise referred to as bim um that has become the dominant uh method in in architectural design it's a 3d based uh you know modeling uh centric approach to design that didn't exist uh early on so now I, now it's much easier to get to vr from a standard design workflow because architects already have 3d models and it's when done right could be simply you know a one click or one button press to go from their bim experience on a 2d screen to a 3d spatial experience so it's just a lot easier to get in and out of vr now than it was a few decades ago yeah i i've noticed that with the technology and how it's changed over the years i mean we have standalone headsets now you can just put something well, right. on and and just put it on and just have it and doesn't have to be attached to a computer that's you know running on different graphics cards now you have the graphics cards inside the headset and and the convenience is is a really wonderful wonderful thing and one thing i've always noticed that really fascinates me about everybody's journey is the first time they experienced vr and mm. 30 years ago vr was nothing like it was now i can imagine i mean the headsets the designs what was it like experiencing VR for the first time in that time period when it was it was kind of growing up a little bit? It was starting its evolution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the graphics were very simple, you know, mostly flat shaded polygons, some very crude texture mapping to kind of get a sense of of materiality. Uh, but yeah, the actual experience of the hardware, I mean, in some ways hasn't changed that much. It's still often a uh, binocular display that's on your head or on your face and 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 tracked using one method or another uh so those basics haven't changed but the actual experience i mean headsets were larger heavier you were essentially covered in cables <laughs> uh 
Um, there were external trackers. You had, a, a, you know, the, the hardware was like the size of a dorm refrigerator. It cost, you know, a, a quarter million dollars. And now, it, you know, it fits in your phone, right? It's so the hardware is miniaturized. Uh, we've gone from very wired and cabled to a mostly wireless experience, uh, much lighter, much more accessible. I mean, we carry this this computing power in our pockets now and and often don't think twice about it. And you know, we've got, you know, wearables and uh, on your wrist or in some cases in a pair of glasses. And it's it's when done right, it's it becomes almost like a second nature kind of accessory. You know, there shouldn't there isn't that much thought involved in getting to that experience now. Yeah. Do you think that with VR now it is better or are there still things that need to be improved upon? Oh, boy. Uh, yes to all the above. It's certainly a better experience. And there's so much more room for improvement. Uh, again, I'll wear, the, I'll wear my architect hat. Um, even the best displays out there, both VR and AR, are still um, still not there yet in terms of having a, a completely... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess I, compl- I don't want to say satisfying because it could be satisfying, but a completely overwhelming experience. Uh, we still, I mean, as the, arch- the architect in me wants to have peripheral vision. You know, we're still we're still measuring field of view in number of degrees. You know, sometimes you can hit 90 or a little bit more, but rarely do you have kind of the full peripheral vision that you would want to have in a spatial experience. Uh, you know, resolution is getting better. So there's all kinds of metrics that are improving. But I think there's still a little ways to go. And I don't think we're that far off. I mean, if the trajectory we're on, maybe in the next few years, we get to the point where it doesn't, we're not having a conversation. But if you take a look at some of today's most advanced uh, see-through displays, optical augmented reality displays, the, the actual display inside of the, within the, you know, the broader lens, still pretty narrow and can be frustrating to, to feel like you're actually immersed in another environment. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that especially with all the different companies that are around right now. You have HTC, you have Meta, you have a lot of the the larger manufacturers. They're still figuring out the headsets. They're still figuring out the displays, how we see things. And we also don't have all of our senses yet. You know, we have, we have sight, we have sound, we have touch, but is, is, are there more elements that we're missing, especially in, in, in architecture? Cause I have a friend who's an architect when I was in college, I had a number of friends, uh, who were in the architecture program, not that I know anything about architecture, but some of their information kind of rubbed off on me. And and one thing that we often used to talk about is they said, there's a difference between blueprinting something out and actually walking through it, you know, walking through a building or walking through these different structures. And there's a huge difference between the smell, the the feeling of the air, the like just being there, being being present, and is is presence a big thing that virtual reality and augmented reality can improve on? Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and, and of course, you know the, your primary sense in in experiencing architecture is often visual, um, but it's certainly not limited to to, to the visuals. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's the there's the kind of the, the subtle acoustics of walking. In an empty hallway versus a full hallway, uh, there's, as you said, the smells. I mean, some of those sensory experiences or, or representations of those sensory experiences are starting to come through in in some VR or XR experiences, but they're they're usually specialty cases. They're kind of 
like a little sideshow. Uh, most of uh, most of the effort is still around the visuals, and I think that's okay. But yeah, I don't think we're going to get there until we have um, a better better spatialized audio. Uh, certainly, smell makes it very interesting because it's so tied to our our sense of memory and in touch. I mean, I. I so much of architecture or the architectural experience is about touch and whether that's the obvious, you know, the door handles and the drawer pulls or literally every surface you can run your fingers along as you walk, you know, walk in a, in, in an environment and not just architecture. I mean, you could talk about any natural environment as well. The sense of touch is so, so critical. And I think we're so far right now from good haptic feedback, haptic displays, haptic experiences. So yeah, Lots of room for improvement uh, before we finally get to that kind of ultimate immersion, if you will. But, but you know, I'll, I'll talk out of two sides of my mouth here. Despite all that room for growth and room for improvement, um, today, just like we could even 30 years ago, you can suspend your disbelief pretty quickly when you're immersed in the right content, uh, you know, the right engagement, the right messaging, the, the right experience you can you can suspend that disbelief and you can have uh you can build that that triggering sense of of experience and build a spatial memory from even crude visuals or crude audio or crude crude haptics so it doesn't necessarily depend on the ultimate photorealism to be convincing um you know we've gotten by pretty well so far over the last few decades with with you know substandard or sub ideal conditions yeah. I I've I've been fascinated with everything in in XR, especially the experience of it, you know, touching the different surfaces and right now just like you said haptic feedback is we're we're a little far, we're a little ways away. We're a little ways away. Right now it's a vibration in the controller or mm -hmm. if you have haptic gloves if you can afford them or if you can get your hands on them, it's still a little bit more advanced, but it's still just, you know, pushing something sensor sensors pushing against you you know, and I do love the idea of that, um, of that improving. And there's so many things that, that tie into the careers that we've, uh, that we've had and digital twins are one of the, one of the biggest new concepts, uh, relatively new concepts I've noticed, not only in just architecture and kind of seeing these buildings, but also in sustainability. Uh, I've noticed that, uh, there are organizations that are immortalizing their buildings or structures or statues or or different places or in different natural environments to immortalize it forever because we have a lot of things that are dying or being destroyed or um you know or or are going away so digital twins and sustainability i can imagine are are going to be big for you and what i'm curious about is these digital twins that are being created for the purpose of showcasing what they are and how we can increase the concept of sustainability. What are your thoughts on, on, on that essentially cre recreating what we see in real life in a digital environment in order to immortalize it? Sure. Sure. Well, there's, there's a lot of threads to pull on in this one. Um, Let's see. So, I mean, yeah, the notion of a digital twin um, has been around for a while, especially in some industries like architecture, where we're we're building a 3D model in advance of of building it. 
physically or building it digitally first. Um, maybe that's not quite a digital twin, but it certainly sets up the, the notion that you can have a, a digital prototype and then a physical expression. And maybe it's not just a one-way uh, trip of the digital informing the physical, but can become a round trip. And the, the, the physical um, artifact can then be updated and then inform updates to the digital and vice versa. And you can get into predictive analytics and there's, there's all kinds of ways to take it, you know, once you start modeling behaviors and not just, not just geometry. Um, but it's not limited to architecture, of course. I mean, every, every major industry is looking at digital twins. I mean, uh, the, in the healthcare industry, there's the, the notion of a digital twin of your body as, you know, the, the, your healthcare records embodied with you, or your car can have a digital twin with its, its maintenance history associated with it and so on. So almost every major industry is looking into some notion of digital twins. Um, <clears throat> for me, since, since you brought up sustainability, um, I, step away from digital twins for a quick second. I've been on, on my own journey uh, from being an architect to working in architecture and construction to, so, so sustainability has always been there, maybe even in the background or subconsciously in the architecture industry, it's become more of a focal point for the industry, as well as for me personally. Um, you know, there's enough things that have happened uh, in the in the climate change space that if it's not present in your mind by now, you know, you're not on the same planet we are. I mean, he, I mean, just just the, the the news headlines out of the last 24 hours. I mean, people literally being treated in the hospital in the ER for getting burned from falling on the ground because the ground is 180 degrees or like today it came out that the the water off the coast in florida has now hit hot tub temperatures of 101 degrees like this stuff is real and it is happening and it is impacting us and it's not going away anytime soon unless we take some serious action so um my own journey has been you know from having sustainability in the back of my mind to evolving to a very kind of frontal focus for me um and that ties hand in hand of course with architecture because so much of what we do is designing and planning and ultimately building the physical environment that impacts climate change or is impacted by climate change so they're intertwined yeah um anyway sorry i'll, I'll get off my soapbox there um it's a good soapbox <laughs> yeah well it's an important one right it's a challenge of our lives very um but to take that back to digital twins, um, I got involved in a project a few years ago where um, I happened to be on sabbatical uh, from from the company I was working with. And, and the sabbatical allowed you to do anything you wanted. I mean, you could go lay on a beach, you could write a book, you could read a book, whatever you wanted. Um, I was pretty motivated at the time to use my architectural expertise, my background in, in XR, and do something associated with climate change. Uh, just for, for my own good, if not for the planet's good. Um, and kind of developed, uh, selected and developed the project and then then executed it where uh, I ended up taking my family to Micronesia. Um, and without getting into too much detail, Micronesia has um, these fantastic ruins, uh, very unique uh, from an ancient architecture perspective. It ruins consisting of this uh, combination of of uh, coral and basalt, very kind of unique construction uh, in the world. And uh, the last time anybody had seriously documented 
these ancient ruins were, you know, mid 20th century with black and white photography. Uh, sort of there's kind of a, a one specific source in particular that is kind of the definitive guide or or documentation of these ruins. Anyway, um, thanks to climate change and sea level rise, these ruins, uh, which are on the coasts of the islands uh, in Micronesia, are at high risk of going underwater. And as uh, even today, as as the king tides once or tw twice a month hit, um, there is oceans overlapping the shores and seriously threatening these ruins. So um, a few years ago, I took it upon myself to uh, create a digital twin of these ruins as an update to this black and white photographic record. Uh, so kind of for um, historic preservation purposes and documentation purposes, wanted to do a, a 3D model. Um, and um, so you know, at the time I was learning to do aerial photogrammetry, fly a drone, take thousands of photos and create these relatively convincing, somewhat photorealistic 3D models, and then would create uh, VR and AR experiences with them. Uh, so created sort of a little mini digital twin cycle where the, the photogrammetry and the reality capture was a way to um, document the physical artifact and inform a virtual one. And then uh, the VR and AR experiences were taking the, the virtual environment and allowing people to experience it physically. Uh, so it kind of created its own little kind of bi-directional uh, cycle, if you will. What came out of that, though, was um, the uh, the Micronesian Historic Preservation Office was able to use that documentation, that 3D documentation, to apply for UNESCO status. Um, which ultimately would allow them to uh, secure the grant funding to protect the ruins themselves. So, you know, mit various mitigation strategies to try and protect these ruins from uh, from the erosion, from climate change. Uh, but what came out of that, I mean, that's, that was sort of the, the clinical version of what was going on. But what came out of that for me, and I already was convinced of the power of XR, specifically immersive VR, but um, you know there were language barriers and cultural barriers between me and the and the Micronesians, um, and in some ways it was hard to get the locals to care about these stones that were literally in their backyard that had been just sitting in their backyard for thousands of years or hundreds of years anyway. Um, but uh, when we could put them in a headset, give them a VR experience, well, at first it just kind of shrug it off like this is interesting and, and kind of a peculiar way to experience a digital model, but they already knew there's stones in their backyard. So it was kind of a, so what? Until I started to raise the water level, you know, past their ankles, past their waist, up to two meters where it's over their head, they had a very visceral experience. Suddenly it hit home, just what it means for the sea level to rise. Not only are the stones in their backyard going underwater, but their homes were too. And the light bulb came on and it really enforced for me, the power of XR to transcend cultural differences and language barriers and um, give people this, this sense of understanding that they could only otherwise get intellectually, but not viscerally. Yeah. First off, I got goosebumps when you said the results of what happened of, of you doing this photogrammetry project using the drones um, and the impact that it had on, uh, on the government being able to protect these ruins and it's really incredible and something clearly passionate about that I'm also passionate about as well is XR for good, 
you know, which you used XR for good in order to get these people to understand, hey, listen, climate change is going to severely affect how you live your everyday life. It's going to affect your homes. It's going to affect your entire culture, right? It's going to have these effects. And XR creating under, you, you talked about XR creating understanding, but I can imagine also that XR is really powerful when it comes to creating empathy, creating a more of a sense of, of, of empathy. Because oftentimes when we're in school and we are looking at, for example, you know, we're learning about wars, right? We're, we're seeing, we're seeing what happened in World War II. We're seeing what happened in, in the Civil War. It's pictures, it's text. The brain doesn't really absorb the information as much as putting on a headset and experience what it would be like to be in a firefight. Like, it's terrifying. You hear things, you see things, you, you feel things, right? Mm -hmm. So in your experience, is XR also really good at creating a sense of, of empathy in people where otherwise they wouldn't have felt that? I mean... The answers are resounding. Yes, we're in heated agreement on this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and and XR or VR in particular has been has been touted as being the ultimate empathy machine, and and I think you have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt because uh, there's so much further the technology has to go before it can really get there. But uh, but yeah, that's exactly what it is, right? It's it's a it's a tool. Uh, when used right, and when the experiences are done right, it's a tool to give somebody, uh, you know, put someone in somebody else's shoes, um, or not even someone else's. It could be another another species' shoes, if you will, uh, and give give you an experience that you wouldn't otherwise be able to have. Um, the uh, I'll, I'll tell a quick story, and then maybe a, a longer story. So, um, decades ago, when um, when I was new to VR working at the uh, the HIT lab, the Human Interface Technology Lab. Uh, I had the fortune of being able to go to Venice uh, to do some historic documentation and build a 3D VR experience uh, with the HIT lab and with the Telecom Italia. And while I was there, I just took it upon myself to, with could I within 12 hours time document Piazza San Marco, you know, with quick photographs, very simple geometry, just slap up some texture maps and create, recreate Piazza San Marco. And, and I did it, like I said, it took 12 hours as all, all the tech I had at the time to, to make that happen, developing film, you know, real Kodak film and one hour photo these, and then scanning out to, to, to get the texture maps and whatnot before digital photography. Um, anyway, I shared the virtual Venice experience with colleagues of mine back home and they thought that was kind of cute and kind of fascinating. And then 20 years later, one of my colleagues who had had that experience went to Venice and immediately emailed me at the time and said, I have had deja vu. I have been here before. He had the VR experience 20 years prior. And when he got to the actual Piazza San Marco, had this like goosebump kind of experience like, oh, my God, I've been here before. And it really cemented like this this sense that you can transport people to another environment and give them an experience that they feel is real enough to to create a memory. Uh, and, and so I, I set up what that to kind of, and I'll bookend it with a, a recent experience. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with AWE, the Augmented World Expo, uh, who, as as you may know, just recently closed up a year long competition um, called the XR Prize. 
Uh, it had a hundred thousand dollar prize. It was open uh, around uh, teams around the globe to find the best solutions leveraging XR or harnessing XR to fight climate change. And um, echoes of that little Venice story carry forward to today, where teams really picked up on this idea that XR is uh, the the ultimate medium for transporting you into somebody else's environment or to somebody else's point of view, whether that was seeing what happens firsthand to bleaching corals under the water or what it's like to walk as a as an endangered predator in the in the rainforest that's uh, you know being being deforested around. I mean teams from around the globe all picked up on this same thread, that that this that's what XR is good for is giving somebody an experience that they couldn't otherwise get, and it forces empathy because you suddenly have an experience that you wouldn't physically be able to have. Yeah, I'm I'm so passionate about this this sense of empathy, and it's really incredible to see so many individuals and professionals like yourself essentially taking their talents and trying to create a sense of empathy, trying to create a sense of of understanding. And especially at the Virtual World Society, this is something that we appreciate, which is why um which is why we uh we love your work and we love what we do what you do. And what I'm curious about is individuals who are passionate such as yourself who are maybe hesitant because they're intimidated by the by the technology, but they want to do good with it. They want to take what they're passionate about and they want to do good with it. Do you have any advice for those individuals that want to be more like you who want to take their passions into the XR world? Uh, yeah, I mean, and I guess I would right or wrong. I'm going to slice off for a moment. I'll take XR out of the equation. I mean, this like I said, this this climate change issue is the defining challenge of our lives. It is this generation's challenge possibly affecting all other generations to come, the decisions we make here in the next two to 20 years. It's that big of a deal. Uh, and it, I would say it's an open call to anybody, whether no matter what your skill set, whether it's XR, whether you have a background in architecture or aviation or nursing or any profession, use the tools you have available and get in the game and apply those in any way you can think of to reducing your carbon footprint, reducing your use of plastics, reduce your, your use, your dependence on fossil fuels. It, there's so many avenues and it can be a little bit daunting. Pick one, pick any one and just see what you can do to get involved. So again, I kind of took XR out of the equation there for a minute. It doesn't matter what tech or where, where your passion is, there's a tool around you, I guarantee it, that you can pick up and apply uh, to this fight. Now I'll bring XR back into it because it is that ultimate empathy machine. Um, and it, ca it can give you the ability to either create or receive uh, these spatial experiences and have an understanding that of the butterfly effect of what happens when temperatures rise uh, in the South Pacific, and how does that affect cultures in the North Atlantic and vice versa? I mean, we only got one planet, and we better get used to the fact that one activity on one side can affect everybody else on the other side. And XR is a tool that can help us accelerate that understanding and deepen that understanding. So 
uh, advice there is if you're interested, um, get in the game in XR as well. It's it's a it's an approachable industry. You'll find lots of enthusiasts, lots of subject matter experts willing to uh, accept somebody reaching out with questions. Certainly, people could reach out to me at any time. Happy to talk about this. Happy to make connections. There's a lot of passionate individuals out there at the intersection of of XR and sustainability who are just looking to roll up their sleeves and get going and looking for any able-bodied person with the passion to get involved. Oh, well, thank you, Max. It's been a real honor and I really appreciate the time.